Open your Bibles to Acts 19, Acts chapter 19, we'll be looking in a moment at verses 1 through 20, Acts 19, 1 through 20. One of the great joys of being an elder, when I became a ruling elder at one of my previous churches, one of the the things that I did not foresee but turned out to really be blessed by was the, the new member interview. Those people who would come to before the elders and want to join the church, and they would share testimonies of God's work in their lives, testimonies of his grace to them and his love for them. And it was a joy to hear most of the time. Every once in a while, we would hear a testimony that was lacking. The person would tell us about how they had been brought up in a Christian home or how grandma had taken them to Sunday school or how a neighbor had taken them to VBS. They would tell us about how they loved being a part of the church and they thoroughly enjoyed uh, the fellowship and and they liked uh, how it helped them be a good person. But there was no mention of Jesus. The focus was on how much they enjoyed the church, on the fond memories they had of the church, on the good things that were done in and at and because of the church. But they did not testify to the work of Jesus as saving them, as being for them that which uh, uh, held them for eternal life. Those times were difficult. Those testimonies were not as enjoyable. What we have in the text before us this morning is an account similar to that. Of those who are part of the church, who are called disciples by Luke, they are followers, and yet what we are going to find is that they do not know Jesus. As we consider the text, we're going to see the importance of Jesus, that Jesus is the way for church goers, that Jesus is the way for those outside the church who claim some form of spirituality, and that Jesus is the way for the world to be saved. Let's take a look at this text now from Acts 19. We'll be reading verses 1 to 20. Here at the Shore Harvest Presbyterian Church, we believe the Bible to be the only infallible rule for faith and for practice. And that means if you want to know the essential nature of Jesus Christ, you must know this book. So I encourage you now to hear the word of Almighty God. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we had not even heard there was a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. 
And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. And the evil spirit answered them, saying, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. Let's pray and ask his guidance and understanding it. Dear Spirit of God, Holy Spirit, we do ask that you would lead us in understanding your word, and that in understanding it, you would lead us to Jesus, who is the way and the truth and the life, the one whom we cannot do without, the one without whom we have no hope. Let us see him in the text this morning and his centrality to our faith. We pray this in his name. Amen. We're going to look this morning first at the way, that is Jesus, for churchgoers in verses 1 through 7, and then we're going to look at the way of the spiritual in verses 8, 9, and 10, and then we're going to look at the way of the way. In the second half of the text, we're going to look at how the way went forward, how the gospel spread, and how these all tie together. So the way for churchgoers, the way of the spiritual, and the way of the way. Let's take a look more closely at these parts of the text. First in verses 1 through 7, the way for churchgoers. So did you catch what happened here? Paul uh, uh, is traveling Uh, to Ephesus. If you recall from last week, Apollos had been preaching in Ephesus, and Apollos had wanted to go to Corinth. And now we read here that he's done that. He's now traveled to Corinth. And so Ephesus is left pastorless, that church. Important city, third most populous city in the Roman Empire at the time, um, behind Rome and Alexandria, an important leading city, but no pastor. And so Paul sets out to go to Ephesus to fill in, to help out there. He travels, he takes a circuitous route, he goes through the, the inland country. In other words, he, he doesn't take the most direct route, but he apparently is stopping and visiting some other churches along the way. 
And he goes there. Now, the, the text here, it's a little, it's not 100% clear exactly what is meant, but there's some indication in the way it's kind of worded, and some translations capture this better than others. There is some sense that perhaps Paul doesn't just stumble upon these disciples randomly. Our text, if you're not careful, might make it feel like, oh, he just happened to find some disciples. Well, there is a sense that he actually went looking for these guys. So he goes looking for these particular called disciples. They're followers. They're following the way. They're part of the church, at least outwardly, at least visibly. They're part of the church. And yet, Paul, when he comes, he's heard heard something that has stirred in him some concern about these men. And so when he arrives there at Ephesus, he pulls these guys aside and begins to question them. He begins to explore what it is they believe. It's like a membership interview. He's asking them about their faith. And in particular, he says, here's really the key. You must have the Holy Spirit. For without the Holy Spirit, you cannot possibly work in your own heart what needs to be worked for proper faith in Jesus Christ. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't have Christ. Do you have the Holy Spirit? And they go, what do you mean? We didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. So he probes a little further then how is it you were baptized? Into what were you baptized? Why do you consider yourself disciples? Why are you here among us? And they say, well, we were baptized into John. John the Baptist. You know, he was good buddies with Jesus. He was the forerunner of Jesus. You know, everybody who's a Christian, everybody who likes Jesus likes John the Baptist. And we're, we're connected to him. That's our connection. And Paul says, well, okay, but we got to wait a moment here. Just because you're connected to John the Baptist doesn't mean that you are connected to Jesus. In so much as you follow John to Jesus, that's a good thing. But if you stop at John, you have a problem. And then Paul quotes John himself. John said, I'm not the one but I come to talk about the one, the one who will come after me. I point you to Jesus. And Paul says, apparently you have taken up the teaching of John, but you have missed the key that you need to move beyond him to Jesus. You know, it's interesting. We don't tend to get caught up in John the Baptist, but I do sometimes run into people who are obsessed with John Calvin. And so long as John Calvin helps you understand Jesus, as long as John Calvin is an aid to you understanding the scriptures and knowing the Savior, that's wonderful. But if you are possessed and obsessed and, and, and driven to follow John Calvin, well, then John Calvin would say, shame on you. For Calvin himself says, if you search the scriptures but do not find Jesus, you have searched in vain. John Calvin would say, I'm here to help you see Jesus. There are some who will pursue with great effort uh, the desire to be properly reformed. In so much as the reformed faith is a biblical faith, amen. But the biblical faith points us to Jesus. The Reformed faith is merely the avenue. 
we must move beyond these things, whether it's John the Baptist or John Kelvin or the Reformed faith or Shore Harvest Church or whatever it might be. And by the way, sometimes that, you know, we all had the development, not we all, those of us who grew up in Christian homes had the development of, at some point we have to go, is this my parents' faith or is it my faith? There is a time where we have to move beyond the things to Jesus himself. And Paul calls these disciples to that on this occasion. It is not enough. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And repentance is important, but repentance on its own is empty. For the word repent means to turn away from. But in Christianity, we don't just merely turn away from. Oh, it's good to turn away from adultery. It's good to turn away from greed. It's good to turn away from sloth. It's good to repent of sin. But if what you turn away is you turn away from them and do not turn to Jesus, you have simply turned from one sin to another. You are still in the sin of unbelief. And the call here is that you must not just simply take the repentance that John preached and turn away from your sins. Dear disciples, you are here, Paul says, you are among these believers because you you like the, the repentance, the good deeds they're doing. You like the fact that they are steering clear of sin. But you've missed the point. What binds us together is Jesus. That's who we need. That's who we must turn to. And that cry and that call to us today is the same. Are you here because you love the fellowship of Shore Harvest? Are you here because perhaps you love the beautiful sanctuary we've been blessed with? Perhaps it's the the, the grandeur of our organ or the the gifts of our, our musicians. Perhaps there's a teacher here you particularly like. None of those are the reason to be here. The question is this. Have you found Jesus? Do you see him as the way? The one whom you must have. Our faith must be in Jesus. Why? Because apart from him, our repentance in and of ourselves will always fall short. Oh, we may turn away from certain sins mostly, but we will never in this life turn away from them fully. We may do some good deeds frequently, but we will never fulfill all the goodness that we are supposed to fulfill. On our own, our repentance cannot save us. But when we turn to Jesus, when we stand in his righteousness, as one of the hymns spoke of, as we stand on his good deeds, our repentance is brought to fullness and completion. The preaching of John was a preaching that said, look at the one who comes after me, and Paul calls these men to that same Jesus. Being in the church visibly is not enough. We must be in Christ. When Paul points these men to Christ, they readily accept. They readily respond. They were prepared by the Spirit to, to accept Jesus. 
We see there that Luke notes, and we've had quite a few conversions in, along the way here with no, 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 no notice of them speaking in tongues or prophesying, but here Luke makes a note of it, that like the day of Pentecost when Jews came to know Jesus as the Messiah, like at Cornelius' home when Gentiles came to know the Lord as Messiah, here we see these men being affirmed that they are now true believers. The point seems to be to say to the rest of the church, Paul was right. You really do have to cross over from being just a disciple outwardly, just a, a follower of the good deeds outwardly, just a, an adherent of the, uh, of the repentance outwardly. You must follow, love, cling to, believe in, adhere to, trust in, rest upon Jesus of Nazareth. And as affirmation that Paul's message was right, the Spirit pours out of them through these sign gifts. It's interesting, too, the note about there were 12 of these men. A little later in the text, a, a small little thing is going to happen. We're going to see the church break from the synagogue. For the first time in recorded history, the church will no longer be part of the synagogue. The split between Judaism and Christianity is underway. And Luke notes that there were 12 of them because in order to establish a synagogue, in order to establish a house of teaching and and worship, you must have at least 10 men. And so Luke is noting that they had a sufficient number of men here to break from the Jewish synagogue and go out on their own, as we will see momentarily. The way for churchgoers is the one who calls himself the way. It is Jesus of Nazareth and none other. There is no other way. And then we turn in verses 8 through 10, and we see Paul going out to outside the church to those who do not claim faith, and yet they are spiritual. He goes into the synagogue in verses 8, 9, and 10. These are spiritual men and women. These are uh, uh, Jews who are going to, to uh, the synagogue every Sabbath to partake, to hear of the word of God and to partake in it. But Paul calls them also to the same thing. You must know Jesus. And he reasoned with them. He he wrestled with them intellectually to show them from the scriptures that they had to have Jesus of Nazareth. That he was the only true way. And as I noted already, we do see them them, uh, parting company there uh, uh, in in verse 9. When some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way of the Christian faith before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples, probably those 12 that we see at the beginning, maybe some others, took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. We don't know for certain, but we think the hall of Tyrannus is a school. And I just think that's hilarious. What do you do today when you're trying to get a new church up and running? You don't have a building yet. You're trying to look for a place to meet. Where do we, where do churches end up going? They end up going to schools, don't they? Meeting in a school cafeteria or auditorium or gymnasium. Here we, you go back 2,000 years. That's what they were doing back then. Church has got to get up off the ground, get going. They go to the Hall of Tyrannus. They go meet in a school. And we have here the first separation of Jews and Christians. Now, don't get me wrong. Many of those who were in the Hall of Tyrannus were Jewish ethnically. Probably at this point, most of them were still Jewish ethnically. But religiously, 
Judaism and Christianity have now begun to separate, to divide, to part. And they had to. And if the flock was to be fed, you can't have the booers, the naysayers, those who are hissing and you know, catcalling and you know, shouting Paul down and talking evil. At some point, Paul went, my attempts to convert have ceased. You guys are no longer, you're hardened your hearts, and I've got to feed the flock. And they've got to hear the word, and we've got to part ways. And that's what happens. You know, it's interesting, though, that Paul does go back to this crowd in the synagogue, just as it was important for the disciples, for those who claimed to be part of the way, to know the way, Jesus Christ. So Paul also looks at those who are, who are spiritual. They're going to church. They're doing something religious. We have many in our culture today who claim spirituality. Many of you know I teach part-time at a local community college. It's amazing to me how many of my students, when they find out that my full-time job is as a pastor, they immediately feel the need to say to me, well, I am very spiritual, I just don't go to church. Spirituality is not the way. Spirituality is not salvation. Having a religion. These people had a religion, and Paul said, I don't, it's not enough. I don't care that you have a religion, I care that you have the true religion. You must know Jesus. And that's why he reasoned with them, so that they would know the way. For those of us who call ourselves Christians, we must be sure that we are Christians because we follow the way. But the message we must take to the spiritual of the world, we must never think, well, they're spiritual. Oh, they talk about God. Do they talk about Jesus? Do they care about him? It's not enough to talk about God. It's not enough to be spiritual. We must have the only true Savior. Now, something interesting happens in verse 11, verses 11 through 20. We see a slight change in the, the language, uh, the, the, what, Paul, well, sorry, what Luke describes here. He now begins to describe kind of how Christianity was spreading in Ephesus, how it was growing. What were some of the things by which it went out? And I've titled this section, The Way of the Way. What was the path that Christianity took into the culture? Well, first, in verses 11 and 12, uh, we have the power at work in the apostle. The power at work in the apostle. As I, was re- I, I read this passage like, I don't know, six, eight, ten times this past week. It didn't strike me till this morning. I was standing here reading it going, you know, these ideas, these handkerchiefs, you know, brushed up against his, his skin. You know, basically, we need Paul to wear a single mask, and we all pass that mask around to everybody, and then COVID would be protected, everybody would be protected from COVID. You know, the mask that Paul put on, we just all pass it around, we'd all be protected, I'll be good. That's one of the things that's going on here, is that God has chosen to work supernatural power, signs and wonders. The Greek phrase here is actually this idea of things that had never been done before. Unprecedented events were occurring through Paul the Apostle. We must, never be, we, never, we must never forget the fact that that is always how God has attested his messenger, how he has affirmed and confirmed his messenger. 
When Moses stood before the burning bush and God said, you are going to go to Pharaoh and tell him to release my people. Moses said, what? <laughs> he's not going to believe me. Who am I? How am I going to walk in? What am I going to say? And God gave him signs and wonders. Take the staff that is in your hand, throw it on the ground, it'll become a snake. You're going to do this in front of Pharaoh so that he will know you are my messenger. At a time when the preaching of the word of God had dropped to an all-time low in the history of Israel, God sent Elijah to bring the word in a new way, to bring it in a fresh way, in a turn, in, in, in really kind of a, a turn from the way of promise to the way of judgment. Elijah begins to preach in a new way of condemnation and impending judgment and of doom. What right do you have to declare that we're doomed? Who gave you the right to say that God doesn't love us? And God gave him signs and wonders to attest that he was God's messenger. And we have that here. You know, if we wonder, why don't we do these things nowadays? I don't know, many of you may have had this path in your life. I certainly did. I went through a time as a young Christian, young man as a Christian, thinking to myself, maybe I just lack faith that I can't work these miracles. Maybe the problem is just me. Well, the problem was me. (laughs) It was my understanding of the signs and wonders and of miracles and of their point. There were never, never was it intended that this would always be the way. If this was always the way, then it wouldn't be supernatural. It would just be natural and normal. This was never meant to be the way of things. And in fact, in Paul's own life, we see as he is nearing the end of his life in 2 Timothy 4.20, he writes of his inability to cure Trophimus. I had to leave Trophimus behind. He couldn't travel with me because he was ill. Well, Paul, why didn't you just rub something against your skin and touch Trophimus with it? He'd have been healed, right? Wrong. The signs and wonders were given for a time to attest to the word of God and his messengers. And God did that here. We must not hope for modern signs and wonders, but we must point to these when we are working apologetically with our loved ones, with our neighbors in a Bible study that we might be having. We can remind them We know that Paul, what Paul says, what Paul writes, we know is of God. God attested to him through these signs and wonders. Let us rejoice in the miracles that Paul and Peter and Jesus and the others performed, not wanting to perform our own miracles. We see that the way goes forward by the power at work in the apostle in verses 11 and 12. And then in verses 13 through 17, we see that the way goes forward really by the the lack of power at work in the imposter. We really see a contrast between the power of of God in the apostle and the the lack of God's power in the imposter. We have this account of these these men, these sons of Sceva, this uh, Jewish high priest who... They see what Paul is doing and the other uh, Christians are doing, and they're casting out demons, and they I want a piece of that. That's lucrative. You cast out a demon, that person, they're in debt to you for the rest of their lives. And they want a piece of that action, and they begin to try it as though the name of Jesus were a talisman. was a good luck charm. If we just wave the name of Jesus over the demon-possessed person, then the demon will come out. And the demon mocks them, 
It's actually, it is really quite funny. Yeah, I know Jesus, and I've heard of Paul. I have no idea who you are. Get out of my face. <laughs> Leave me alone. Go away. I don't have to answer to you. You have no power over me. You know, it's interesting. The world without Christ has no power over its problems. It will, for a time, give the appearance of having solved those problems. There will be times when the world can look like the problems are solved, and that is some of our difficulty in evangelism today. One of the challenges of Christianity today is that it is not in the, the world is not in the condition it was back then. The, the prevalence, the oppression of sin was so obvious back then, and the way people were treated, the way slaves were treated, the way women were treated, the way children were treated, the way the underclasses were treated, the, the oppression of sin was so obvious that the message of salvation was readily received by many. Our culture today, we, we lack some of that. In fact, in some ways, our, 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 everything seems hunky-dory. Everything seems really good in our culture. I don't need a savior. There's nothing wrong with us. Look how wonderful things are. You know, it was the Philadelphia preacher, uh, uh, Donald Barnhouse, who about, I don't know, about 70 years ago or so, uh, was asked the question, what would things look like if Satan had complete control? If Satan had complete control and applying it to his own city of Philadelphia, Pastor Barnhouse said this, All the bars would be closed, pornography banished, and there would be pristine streets filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. One of the ways we are duped is by the outward appearance of everything being in order. This was so obviously out of order that it says because of it, the name of Jesus was extolled. One of the things we struggle with in our society is that the world has actually gotten better at making hospitals than the church. We used to be the ones who led the way in making hospitals, and the world's pretty good at it. We used to be the ones who established universities and institutions of higher learning, and the world's gotten pretty good at that. And it has left us. We used to be the ones who had soup kitchens and outreach ministries to the poor and the homeless, and the world has gotten pretty good at that. And the world has continuously taken over some of the very avenues by which we once reached into the culture. And it's made things look pretty good, as if there is no need. But if the pew-sitting, church-going disciple at the beginning of the chapter needed to know the way of Jesus, needed to know Jesus so that he would know the way, if the Jew going to synagogue every week needed to know the way, do not the really together people of our culture, those who've got it figured out, those who are building the best hospitals and the best businesses and operating the best universities, do you think maybe they also need to know the way? They need to hear about Jesus. It's going to be harder to convince them because they see themselves as pretty good. Nevertheless, 
we must proclaim the way to them. We see the power at work through the apostle. We see the lack of power at work through the imposter here in this section. And then finally, we see the power at work in the acceptor. In the acceptor, the one who accepts Jesus. In verses 18, 19, and 20, we see there the account of the confession of sins, of the abandonment of former practices, of the willingness to to turn over the paraphernalia of sin at any cost. 50,000 pieces of silver, hundreds of thousands of dollars, perhaps up over a million dollars in today's evaluation. Fluctuates. It's It's also very hard to compare today's values to the ancient world. A lot of money. And they said, we don't care about the money. What we care about is following Jesus. And they make a public testimony of this. And they abandon the way of sin in, the favor, in favor of following Jesus. And it's interesting, the very last words there, the very last sentence, so, in other words, therefore, because of this, because of the testimony of changed lives, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Converts breed converts. When there is a conversion and there is a life change, it's amazing to me how many people can tell that story. I came to the Lord as an adult. I was living this lifestyle. I had these sins and these sins and these sins. And the Lord saved me out of them and people began to ask me. And I was able to lead them to the Lord. Converts breed converts. We must continue to be faithful in proclaiming the word of the Lord to the lost, trusting that when the Lord brings them in, as they are converted, the change in their life will bring others. We must faithfully pursue the harvest, for as we gather, momentum will build, and others will come. We saw here that Jesus is the way for churchgoers. It's not enough to repent from your sins. It's not enough to turn away from what is bad. You must turn to Jesus. We see in the passage that Jesus is the way for the spiritual. It is not enough to be a part of a religion. It is not enough to go to synagogue every Saturday, to to be spiritual, to meditate, to do yoga. You must have Jesus. We see here then that the way that Jesus goes forward into the world is by the very power that he possesses, the way he worked through the apostles, the way that his work in the world was superior to the work of the world, and finally the way that he changed lives. It was in knowing Jesus that the churchgoer knew the way. It is in coming to Jesus that the spiritual one knows the way. And it is when people come to know the way that the way will be open for other people. And we see all of that set forth in this text. We're going to fail to properly, rightly proclaim Jesus. But that's okay. Our repentance isn't turning to our own good deeds, it's turning to him. It's not okay, but it's okay. It's a weird way to say that. 
we're going to fail in abandoning the sin of this life. We are not going to turn over every dark magic like they did. We're going to hold something back. But again, it's not about the perfection of our repentance, but about the one we're turning to. So long as we hold to him in our lives, talk about him with our tongues, steward our lives toward him, share him, proclaim him, then he will prevail mightily. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that you would make yourself known to us anew today. Let us see again Jesus hanging on the cross in our place, taking the beatings that we deserved, bleeding for us, dying for us. Let us see him also raising from the dead. And when we are renewed in he who is the way, then let us be renewed also in our desire and our joy of proclaiming him to others, that he would be glorified and that he would prevail. We ask this in his name. Amen.